Hello and welcome to Coloured Souls. My name is Jamie Gladstone and here we will discuss current affairs in race policy, developments in education, African, Caribbean and South American history, as well as important texts in post-colonial literature. Over the course of my master's degree and in researching for these episodes, the concept of assimilation came up time and time again. And I found myself questioning why that was the case. What is it about assimilation that has troubled so many communities, individuals and institutions? In order to understand this concept, I've been looking at it from a number of angles. In this episode, we will discuss the positionality of being an indigenous outsider. In order to establish the base, it is important to first identify what is meant by the term indigenous outsider. In the context of this podcast, the term will be used to identify the concept of stepping out of your ethnic community, whether that be West African, East Asian, White British or any other, and how distancing oneself from their communities may impact upon the ways that those communities are then viewed and or treated. Franz Fanon said in Black Skin White Masks that the more the colonised has assimilated the cultural values of the metropolis, the more he will escape the bush, therefore the whiter he will become. In this context, we can intimate that Fanon was discussing what Richard Fryer and Sarah Ahmed elaborated on as the proximity to whiteness. That is, the closer one is aligned to the political and social description of whiteness, the more value they are likely to be afforded in modern times. This does not equate to a total separation from their cultural heritage, but it certainly manifests in ways which distance them from their communities. Let's look at the most current front bench of the Conservative Party as of September 2022. It's quite possible that when this podcast is first published, that front bench may have changed. There have been comments in the press as to the diversity on display being a positive thing for the country. And whilst on the surface, this is most certainly how it would appear. However, when we look at the policies that many of these MPs have supported and the negative impacts that these have had on their own communities, Fanon's words become ever more important. I will not go into the detail into specifics of each member, but I will highlight a few examples. Now this I know I have mentioned in, uh, in at least two previous podcasts, but I feel the prominence of it is still just as important. This was a quote. We do not want to see our teachers teaching their white pupils about white privilege and inherited racial guilt. And let me be clear, any school which teaches these elements of critical race theory as fact, or which promotes partisan political views such as defunding the police without offering a balanced treatment of opposing views is breaking the law. These are the words of Kemi Badenoch in 2020, then the Minister of State for Equalities and, as of September 2022, forms part of Liz Truss's government as the Secretary of State for International Trade. Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, Nadim Zahawi, heavily criticised political discussion in the classroom when he was the Education Secretary and worked to implement new policy which could see teachers and schools punished for criticising the government. That is is to say nothing of the continued support for the very richest in society whilst those most affected by the rising cost of living suffer, but I digress. 
The issue here is less about diversification of faces, but of ideology. For if the goal is the subjugation of particular communities and the continued oppression of people with less money whilst the most affluent continue to dominate, then this particular display of diversity is nothing more than tokenistic. If we look at this from the perspective of Malcolm X, it could be argued that such positionality is in line with what he referred to as being of the house or being of the field. Take a moment to listen to this audio. Back during slavery, when black people like me talked to the slaves, they didn't kill them. They'd send some old house negro along behind him to undo what he said. You have to read the history of slavery to understand this. There were two kinds of negroes. There was that old house negro and the field negro. And the house negro always looked out for his master. When the field negroes got too much out of line, he held them back in check. He put them back on the plantation. The house negro could afford to do that because he lived better than the field negro. He ate better, he dressed better, and he lived in a better house. He lived right up next to his master in the attic or the basement. He ate the same food his master ate and wore his same clothes. And he could talk just like his master. master. Good diction. And he loved his master more than his master loved himself. That's why he didn't want his master hurt. If the master got sick, he'd say, what's the matter, boss? We sick. When the master's house caught a fire, he'd try and put the fire out. He didn't want his master's house burned. He never wanted his master's property threatened. And he was more defensive of it than the master was. That was the house Negro. But then you had some field Negroes who lived in huts, had nothing to lose. They wore the worst kind of clothes, they ate the worst food, and they caught hell. They felt the sting of the lash. They hated their master. Oh, yes, they did. If the master got sick, they prayed that the master died. <laughs> if the master's house caught a fire, they prayed for a strong wind to come along. This was the difference between the two. And today you still have house Negroes and field Negroes. I'm a field Negro. Just to clarify, this is not to say that just because somebody is from a particular ethnic group or community, it does not mean that they will represent that community. They have no obligation to. However, as a person of the global majority, your ethnicity precedes you. And in 21st century Britain, this can still manifest as having to align yourself with particular parts of the nation. But where does such an alignment leave people that position themselves in such ways? Well, here is where the phrase indigenous outsider comes into prominence. To their own community, they are now outsiders. They are not working for the benefit of cultural identity, but for an effective epistemicide and assimilation into the dominant power which controls society. For more on epistemicide, check out episode 5 of this season's podcast. To an extent, the idea of self-preservation makes sense. After all, we all need security in our lives, be it financial, in the home, or in any other part of our lives. But when it comes at the detriment of others, is when it becomes problematic. The purpose of this argument is not to say that everybody from an ethnic community should reject any other paradigms and live within a closed society. Far from it. Opening your mind and heart to other ways of knowing and living is an enriching experience, as many people learn when they travel. 
However, to actively work to perpetuate injustice and dominance over another community, your own community, is a completely different positionality. In the context of the current UK government, the use of ethnically diverse faces does little to support a multicultural future for Britain. Instead, what it does is continue to marginalise and allow some extreme voices to use the presence of an ethnically diverse bench to justify racist policies and to further strengthen racial inequality in the country. In recent years, we have seen just this in the context of the report of the Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities headed by Dr Tony Sewell. This report did much to disregard and downplay the very real impact of institutional racism in Britain. In a 2021 article by Calvin Bhopal, the glaring disparities between reality and the report were highlighted, with Bhopal going so far as to say that the report as a whole displays a basic misunderstanding of how racism works. In the context of education, Bhopal noted that one of the claims made by this report is that white working-class children trail behind their peers in almost all ethnic minority groups. Once socioeconomic status is controlled for, the authors of the report write, all major ethnic groups perform better than white British pupils, except for black Caribbean pupils. Yet while statistics such as these can be useful for mapping broad trends, they are far from perfect. Statistics are shaped by the assumptions, theories and interests of the authors. They aren't neutral, and they can introduce unintended biases. So let's focus for just a moment on the use of statistics and specifically the way that these can be interpreted and presented to confirm or deny a claim. In the Sewell report they state that it is sometimes claimed that black people are nine times more likely than white people to be stopped and searched. This relative rate is reported at a national level and does not account for differences in the sizes or characteristics of local populations or the way that stop and search is used at a local level. For these reasons, the national relative rate is not always accurate and stop and search rates should be analysed at smaller geographic levels. Okay, to me this makes sense, and as a basic rule looking at statistics at a local level will always give a more accurate reflection of your own community. The report goes on to say that between April 2010 and March 2019, rates of stop and search decreased for all ethnic groups. In this time frame, the stop and search rate decreased the most for white people by 79% from 19 stops per 1,000 to 4 per 1,000. For people from mixed ethnic groups by 69%, so that's from 35 to 11 per thousand people. The rates of stop and search decreased the least for black people by 68% from 117 per thousand people to 38. In England and Wales in 2019 to 2020, the highest percentage of arrests resulting from stop and search was of white people at 52%, followed by 19% of stops by black people. This equates to approximately one in two white people arrested as a result of stop and search and one in five black people. Now when the statistics are analysed in this way, it could be argued that there is no disparity and that white people are in fact being targeted. However, when we look at this in terms of population in the UK, this number swings the other way. 
The population of people identifying as white British as of the latest census is 55 million. This indicates that with the numbers that the SUA report is using, that 0.004% of the white British population is stopped and searched, with 0.002% being arrested. As for the population that identify as black, 0.038% are stopped, with 0.008% being arrested. The number of arrests by population is four times the rate than that of white drivers. I hope this example has shown you just how numbers can be used to say one thing or the other. Now I'm going to leave it up to you to interpret these statistics in a way that you believe is fair. Now, Tony Sewell himself is a very well-respected name due to his work with marginalised communities, such as the creation of the charity Generating Genius. And this is why it is so important to critically take the authorship of the report into account. The same person that has worked to ensure that equality and equity is implemented in order to remove racialised barriers, wrote in what has been dubbed the Sewell Report, cited the misapplication of the term racism as diluting its credibility, and that accusations of institutional racism should be levelled against the institutions, which diverts the argument to the system and from the individual. So what this effectively says is that it is up to the individual to identify any issues of institutionalised racism, and that institutions themselves are not responsible relegating the real experiences of many British citizens of colour to merely anecdotal occurrences further diminishes the salience of the real issue of racism that exists in this country. Representation of diversity in the context of important voices cannot have its full impact if the voice is used as a means to justify the subjugation of minority groups, especially if that voice is being channelled via a positionality of dominance. There have been many incidents of global majority citizens being metaphorically thrown under the bus. Think Sean Bailey and the lack of support offered to him by his party when running for mayor and how the Partygate scandal has impacted upon his credibility. We'll now turn briefly to the feeling of being on the outside when you have stepped out of your community in order to pursue a career path that requires you to distance yourself geographically from your network. For this... I'll be drawing on the work contained within Linda Tuiwai Smith's Decolonizing Methodologies. For many indigenous researchers, trying to find a suitable balance between the demands of research and the realities which are presented by their own indigenous communities can present a wide range of issues. These can range from ethical, cultural, political and personal. These become particularly important when indigenous researchers work partially as insiders in their own communities and are often employed for this purpose, and partially as outsiders, because of their Western education or because they may work across clan, tribe, linguistic age and gender boundaries. Often they are required to work within specific parameters or particular paradigms within their research institutions, thus positing them as insiders to the institution, but as outsiders due to their ethnicity. 
This marginalization affects some researchers with what Patricia Hill Collins refers to as the outsider within positioning of research. Sometimes, when researching the community, or when sitting in on research meetings, it can feel like an inside-out, outside-in research. Like occupying space in two concurrent, yet opposite worlds. Under colonialism, indigenous peoples have struggled against the Western view of history, and yet have equally been complicit with that view. The histories of our people have been told and retold through Western lenses, often positing indigenous communities as being savage or lost before the presence of European colonialists. The education system, or more specifically, schooling, has impacted directly in the perpetuation of these histories and the relationships we have with ourselves and others. Through the curriculum and its underlying theory of knowledge, early schools redefined the world and where indigenous peoples were positioned within the world. The stories of the origins of humans on the planet were often devalued or destroyed in order to make way for Christianity, whereby many indigenous peoples were positioned, some of us as higher order savages, who deserved salvation in order to become children of God. Despite being considered part of an empire, the truth manifested as a system of oppression, this included having to learn new names for our own lands. Other symbols of our loyalty, such as a flag or accepting a monarch from a different country, were also an integral part of the imperial curriculum. Our orientation into the world was already being redefined as we were being excluded systematically from the writing of the history of our own lands. Thus, to challenge this system would effectively make you an outsider in the context of empire. A lone voice or small collection of voices that dissented against the regimes which held the power over your native lands. This I've seen personally throughout my life with many people completely rejecting their heritage in order to pledge their allegiance to the then queen. This is not to say that representing your heritage somehow makes you less British. I consider myself to be British, but equally, I consider myself to be Antiguan. It is in this duality that I find myself as the indigenous outsider. The experiences I have had in education, as a student and as a practitioner, previous jobs I have held and general discussions that I have had with people through my many trips around the sun have all opened my eyes to the skin that I inhabit. The idea of being on the outside regardless of where you are placed is one that can be difficult to both understand and to describe. It's like being everywhere and nowhere. So when reports, such as the Sewell Report, are released, it makes me question the motives of the researchers, where the funding is coming from, and what the intended outcome is for the research. This I extend to the positions of power, where we don't find many global majority faces. And when we do, they often have extreme right-wing views, which are to the detriment of a multicultural society. Whether it is the child of parents who immigrated to the UK calling for the country to shut the borders, or African diasporic ministers claiming that racism does not exist in Britain, and that Britain is the least racist country in the world. These positionalities are potentially dangerous, and certainly offensive to a great many people that are responsible for what we define today as British. Now I'm not sitting here saying that Britain is the most racist country in the world, or even in Europe. 
However, it does exist here, and it impacts upon many, many people. I am a person of this land, thus, in a modern definition, indigenous to modern Britain. Yet someone that works to promote anti-racism, as a black British man of mixed heritage, I can often find myself in conflict with many of the points of views which appear to catch the popular vote, often subjected to the question, but where are you really from? I'm neither alone nor unique in this particular position. There are many hundreds of thousands of people whom have either been born here or the children of empire, insiders to the British populace yet positioned as outsiders based on arbitrary markers such as skin colour, language or political positionality. But where are you really from? Wow, what a phrase. These six words have the power to denationalize, to other, to question your very identity. Simply because you have an accent or skin darker than that which is expected. I'm from London. No, but really. London. These seemingly innocuous phrases chip away at the mind, persistently othering and isolating global majority citizens of Britain. We call them microaggressions. Derald Wing Su, in 2010, describes microaggressions as brief, everyday exchanges that send denigrating messages to certain individuals because of their group membership. These communicative acts are so pervasive and automatic in daily conversations and interactions that they are often dismissed and glossed over. To gloss over these interactions as being nothing more than, for example, banter, does much to perpetuate their use. In the context of being an indigenous outsider, these interactions are constant reminders that regardless of time spent in a country, your place of birth or your passport, you'll always be the other. Forever on the outside and never fully accepted. Although microaggressions are pervasive, injurious and toxic communication practices, they are often normalized as innocent and innocuous in everyday interactions through what Paolo Freire calls an ideological fog that obscures their symbolic and material effects on marginalized groups. They harness their power by sapping the psychic and spiritual energy of recipients and by creating social and material inequalities. I'll leave this episode with a short recollection of an incident which occurred to very close family members of mine. We were volunteering at a group which was a safe place for people that had recently arrived in the UK. The group involved activities for their children and the social space for the adults. During a conversation between one of the organisers, myself and my family members, we received the following comment. You all speak English very well. How long have you been learning? I replied simply. We were born here. We are British. Such is the life of an indigenous outsider.
Thank you very much for joining me on today's podcast. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast app to be notified every time a new episode comes out. And I will speak to you soon.